It's Philosophy Talk. The philosopher Robert Nozick famously said that we should never interfere with consenting acts between capitalist adults. Can free markets ever do more harm than good? Markets inevitably raise moral issues. If everything has a price, why isn't it okay to sell votes to the highest bidder? Some markets undermine the ability of people to participate in a democracy. Why isn't it okay to sell bodily organs? Buying and selling isn't just about individual transactions. Are there things that should not be for sale? Our guest is Deborah Satz from Stanford University. I'm accepting that markets are useful mechanisms for the production and distribution of goods, but the question is, what are their limits? The moral cost of free markets. Recorded in front of a live audience at the Marsh Theater in San Francisco. Coming up on Philosophy Talk. This is Philosophy Talk, the program that questions everything. Except your intelligence. I'm John Perry. And I'm Ken Taylor. Today, we're recording the program in front of a live audience at the, at the Mars Theater, San Francisco's breeding ground for new performance. Our thinking originates at Philosopher's Corner on the Stanford campus. Welcome, everyone, to Philosophy Talk. Our topic today, the moral costs of free markets. Free markets? Are we going to knock free markets? Can I mean, free markets are wonderful things. They're truly open and free and not monopolized by a few big players or overly regulated by intrusive gov governments. In that case, they're amazingly efficient ways of providing people with the things they want and need. They're the chief engines of economic progress. They're singularly conducive to human happiness, Ken. Gosh, John, your enthusiasm for free markets surprises me. I... You don't like free markets? Are you some kind of socialist? Oh. <laughs> I, I, I like markets. I, I like markets in their place. But, you know, I don't believe that every good is best distributed by the market. I don't. You're kidding. Give well, me an example. Well, well, take something as simple as, as well, the air we breathe. I doubt that even you, with your apparently boundless enthusiasm for free markets, would suggest that there should be a price on air? Well, you're cheating, Ken. Uh, nobody controls the air, so nobody can stop you from breathing just because you don't pay the price, so you can't have a market in air. You know, but in fact, there are markets in air, markets in clean air where companies get to buy and sell pollution credits, and that points to a different mar problem with markets. You buy your gas-guzzling dream car, the oil company gets rich, the car company gets rich, and me, I get to breathe dirty air. Okay, well, what you're talking about here is externalities. That's what economists call externalities. Externalities are costs that are generated by an economic transaction between two parties, but are actually paid by someone else or borne by someone else, somebody not a party to the original transaction. Well, right. Now, now you're getting onto it. M markets can generate lots of different externalities, and many of them are really morally problematic. But, you know, that wasn't my original point. Well, well what was your original point? Well, I've lost track of it. <laughs> well, look, 
Even if there could be a market for air, nobody in their right mind would accept it. I mean, look, people have a basic and equal right to air, and things to which we have a basic and equal right, well, they just shouldn't be subject to the whims of the market. You know, some folks having more, some folks having less, some folks having none at all. Yeah, yada, yada, yada. I mean, there are lots of things that rich people have more of than poor people. The poor live in less luxurious houses than the rich. They dr we drive less expensive cars than the rich. <laughs> we go to less fancy schools than the rich, although we actually teach at a very fancy school. Uh, we have less access to the political process. Uh, the rich eat better. They probably don't uh, wear as lousy clothing as you and I do. Uh, if you're going to restrict markets wherever they generate inequality, You've really got your work cut out for you, my friend. Well, I didn't say that wherever markets generate uh, inequality, they, they're bad and ought to be regular. I didn't say that. But, you know, John, markets are not divine. They pay attention only to the bottom line, not to considerations of justice and morality. That's our job. And that's why markets sometimes, sometimes need to be regulated or even altogether pro prohibited. All right. So now what principles are you going to use? principles to distinguish morally intolerable markets from the morally tolerable ones. Well, votes, for example, definitely should not be traded on the free market. And public schools definitely should not be driven by markets. Public schools should offer an education that's good enough for rich and poor alike, independently of ability to pay. How do you like that? Uh, well, not to put too fine a point on it. Those aren't principles. Those are examples. I, I know, but, you know, I have to admit it. I was trying to avoid answering your question. Because, frankly, I don't know what the right principles are. I, I'm not even sure that the, the, all the moral limits of markets have to do with inequality. I, I mean, I think markets in women's sexual labor are, are problematic, deeply problematic. They give me the heebie-jeebies. But I don't think it's just because of inequality. Well, not exactly, anyway. Uh, you know. Well, you, you sound pretty lost on this topic. Uh, <laughs> I, I think, I don't know if we can afford it on the free market, but I, I think we need to call on somebody who's thought a little harder and deeper about this question than you have or even I have, Ken. And that would be our guest, Stanford philosopher Deborah Satz. She's the author of a very fine book, Why Some Things Should Not Be For Sale, The Moral Limits of Markets. She'll join us in a little bit. And we want to hear from our market-savvy and morally engaged audience here at the Marsh as well. We'll be taking live comments and questions, but first, our roving philosophical reporter, Angela Kildoff, talks to someone with first-hand experience in a morally problematic market. She files this report. Nearly 90,000 people in the U.S. are waiting for a kidney transplant. Until a few years ago, 70-year-old Linda Umbach was one of them. When I hit my 60s, then my kidney function began to drop precipitously. So when I was 64, I believe it was, they told me that I was going to either have to go on dialysis or have a transplant, or both. Umbach soon learned that the waitlist had grown significantly in recent years, but the number of transplants had not. I applied to Stanford for a kidney transplant, and they told me the wait was seven to eight years. For many, the wait is too long, and thousands of kidney patients die every year. So I got quite discouraged, knowing the statistics were heavily against me for even getting a call and getting a transplant because there were so many other people waiting. The United Network for Organ Sharing manages waitlists and ensures that organs are distributed based on medical urgency, not on income level. It's illegal to buy or sell an organ, but because the length of the waitlist is so dire, 
the idea of incentivizing donors is catching on. Linda Umbach thinks that makes sense. There's a lot of compensation that goes on in the medical world. Why should we compensate someone for donating an egg, for instance? I'm not trying to rank importance of things, but you have a kidney patient who is really on his way to dying. And I think it's extremely important to compensate someone who helps that person, too. So can you create a market for selling kidneys? In 1988, Iran created a regulated market, and it cleared the country's wait list in just over 10 years. The American Transplant Congress has debated whether to incentivize donations. And the National Kidney Foundation supports tax credits to cover live donors' expenses. Umbach is wary of how a market for body parts might be perceived. Well, first of all, I wouldn't call it market. I would call it for uh, organ donation compensation. A market implies you, you stand out there and you hold a kidney up in the air and say, does anybody want to buy this? And that would lead to a bidding process. Still, Umbach thinks compensation makes sense. For the living donor, for instance, the obvi it's obviously there is expenses to them, there is cost to their work, there's time, there's you know pain from the surgery. And for the deceased donor's family, they also have costs. They have funeral costs, burial costs. Their loved one has been in the hospital, sometimes for some time, and those costs are huge. Umbach co-founded the Bay Area Association of Kidney Patients and continues to support and educate patients and their families. She spent three years on a wait list, and her transplant came through just in time for her 40th wedding anniversary. This was our anniversary gift, was my new kidney. For Philosophy Talk, I'm Angela Kilda. You can listen to the rest of this episode by purchasing it on iTunes Music. Or for unlimited listening, subscribe to our archive at philosophytalk.org.